Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 85, One in Christ. I'm sorry that it's been something like a month since the last episode. Uh, you would have had an episode to listen to a few weeks ago. Uh, I had originally planned to interview Sam Shamoon on April 24th, but Sam had to reschedule uh, for May 8th. Uh, that would have been, or that was a week and a half ago, and you would have had an episode to listen to then, except, uh, unfortunately, I never heard from Sam again. And uh, and although he's been somewhat active on Facebook and on Twitter, he's not responded to my emails, tweets, Facebook messages, and wall posts. Now, I'm not sure if I've done something to upset Sam, or if perhaps maybe he's had family emergencies that have prevented him from responding to me. I, I just don't know. Please pray for him in case, you know, there's some issues that he's dealing with, uh, personal, you know, family issues. Um, and, you know, just know that my invitation to him remains open. Uh, I'd still love to have him on to discuss what we were going to discuss, which is the evidence that Muhammad was a false prophet and that the Quran is of purely human origin and not divine origin. I still think that'd be a great interview to have, and I'll reach out to Sam again in the near future to see if perhaps things are, you know, maybe calmed down or something. Uh, in the meantime, today is what has been uh, what seems to me to be a highly anticipated interview with Dr. Philip Payne. Uh, he joins me today to present his case for egalitarianism, and let me spend a few minutes giving you some background. Uh, egalitarianism, for those of you who aren't familiar with the lingo, uh, is the view which holds that the Bible does not prohibit women from preaching and teaching authoritatively in the church, uh, from being elders and pastors and stuff like that. And furthermore, that husbands don't have authority over their wives, uh, or vice versa for that matter. This is in contrast to complementarianism, which holds that only men are to be pastors and elders and to teach authoritatively in the church, and that husbands are the heads of their households in the sense of having authority over their wives. Now, you might recall that I interviewed complementarian Matt Slick of CARM.org way back in episode 40, She's the Boss. Well, uh, it was either one or maybe even more listeners recommended that I contact Dr. Payne. Uh, he's the author of Man and Woman, One in Christ, uh, and they recommended that I contact him to present the egalitarian view. Uh, Dr. Payne graciously accepted my offer, uh, and today, well, in, in the interview that is being recorded today, uh, he'll be both presenting his case uh, in part one of this interview, his positive case for egalitarianism, and he'll be responding in part two to some common complementarian objections, uh, and I'll publish part two in a few days. Uh, now, just be very clear, I am a complementarian. Uh, I remain so after reading his book. Uh, and so this interview is not an endorsement of egalitarianism. However, I will admit that of all the arguments for egalitarianism that I've come across, Dr. Payne seems to me to be the most powerful and the, and the most exegetically sound. Uh, I, I actually think he's, he's quite challenging. Now, I think it's important that we complementarians take his case seriously, test it in light of the inerrant word of God, and make sure that whichever view we hold in the end, we do so with a very good understanding of and a response to uh, the opposite side, whether that ends up being uh, remaining egalitarianism or whether maybe we uh, convert, so to speak, to egalitarianism and have a good response to complementarianism. That's my motivation for doing this interview, and I hope that it encourages you to take another closer look at the subject, and, and hopefully you'll let me know what you think. Uh, now, in the upcoming couple of months, I've got a lot of great shows lined up for you. 
Uh, Preterist James Jordan joins me to present another understanding of the book of Revelation, similar to that of Dr. Gentry's. I'll be debating Joshua Whips uh, on annihilationism. I'll be interviewing Steve Jeffrey, whom I debated on the Unbelievable Radio program a few months ago, and he'll be presenting us with his case for post-millennialism. Uh, Nick Peters of the Deeper Waters blog will join me to talk about Asperger's and how churches can be more uh, accommodating to people with physical disabilities. He'll be joining me, you know, sometime after that, maybe after a couple of months, to uh, to present the uh, evidentialist response to presuppositionalism. Uh, so that should be pretty good. And then in July, Dr. Michael Brown uh, asked Dr. Brown, uh, you know, he, he's going to be, uh, well, he was going to debate the future of Israel on my show, uh, but unfortunately my friend and listener who was to be Dr. Brown's opponent had to cancel uh, for important personal reasons. But don't worry, if I can't find a replacement, Dr. Brown has agreed to let me interview him. So anyway, you know, I've got a bunch of exciting shows coming up in the next couple of months, and hopefully that'll make up for uh, the recent month-long hiatus. Um, well, I guess that's all I've got. Let's uh, go ahead and hear the next promo, promo in my rotation, which is for Evidence for Faith. Can anyone really know whether or not God exists? Is the Bible really true? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and we are the hosts of Evidence for Faith, the radio show now airing on Sundays from 4 to 5 p.m. at 10.20 a.m. Lots of people believe in God, but they don't think it's possible to know for certain that He really does exist. They believe because they think they ought to. Join us and our interesting guests as we explain the evidences so that you can know for certain that God exists, the Bible is a divinely inspired book, and that Jesus is the Son of God and was raised from the dead. So whether you're seeking answers for yourself or helping others who have doubts, Evidence for Faith will provide the encouragement and assurance you need. That's Evidence for Faith every Sunday from 4 to 5 p.m. where we are helping Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Evidence for Faith is on the air Sundays from 4 to 5 Eastern Standard Time uh, on 1020 AM WIBG in Southern New Jersey. Uh, and it's also streaming live at WIBG.com. Uh, there's also uh, all the past shows, are, or at least many of the past shows, are available at evidenceforfaith.com in the form of the podcast. So, uh, and, and you can find that also in the iTunes store by searching for Evidence for Faith. That's evidence, the number four, faith. Um, I enjoy the show. I, I don't listen to every episode, but I've enjoyed many of them, and I would encourage you to check it out. Again, the, uh, the website is evidence4faith.com. I hope you'll check it out. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Philip Payne, founder and president of Linguist Software Incorporated and specialist in New Testament studies. Dr. Payne has taught New Testament studies at Cambridge, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Gordon-Conwell, Bethel, and Fuller Northwest. And he joins me today to discuss his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, in which he argues that the Apostle Paul taught the full equality of men and women in the church and at home, even when it, even when it comes to teaching and authority. Uh, Dr. Payne, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Now, I'd like to begin by getting to know a little bit about you. Uh, you open your book offering a sketch of your journey to help explain how, as you put it, quote, a thinking textual critic with an enlightened egalitarian view could still cling to the notion of biblical inerrancy, unquote. Uh, and that sketch begins with your father. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about him and the impact that he had on you? 
I wish everyone could have a dad like mine. He delighted in life and had a song for every occasion. He had great energy and loved to hike in the mountains and took us with him everywhere. He rose early daily for personal devotions, praying on his knees for his family and students. I treasure his color-coded Hebrew scriptures and Greek New Testament. After every breakfast and dinner, we would read a chapter from the Bible, verse by verse around the table. Whenever he read, he gave us a fresh translation direct from the original Hebrew or Greek, and I never heard him stumble over any Hebrew or Greek word. Wow. His grandfather, his father, and his uncle were pastors. When Barton was 18, his father was struck with Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rapid paralysis, while he was preaching. After losing sensation in his legs, he sat in a chair to finish his sermon. He died a few days later, shortly after hearing that Barton was elected to Phi Beta Kappa in his junior year at Cal Berkeley. Dad was an only child, so this family emergency caused him to complete his studies after just 33 months at age 19, graduating number two in his class with highest honors in history. This didn't keep him from leadership in various societies, including the Classics Club, chairing the campus law court, being ROTC cadet commander, and on the rally committee, setting up the card stunts for the football games. I still have his cheering cap with the score of every Cal Berkeley football game from 1939 to 42. In his first Old Testament class at San Francisco Theological Seminary, his professor took the class into the parking lot, tossed his Bible on the pavement, put his car jack on the Bible, and jacked up his car, intending to convey that the Bible deserves no more reverence than any other book. Constant attacks on the reliability of the Old Testament caused Dad to focus on Old Testament history and to try to find answers. He earned a BD, summa cum laude, the first time San Francisco Theological Seminary had awarded this honor. While pastoring a church, he wrote a 325-page MA thesis for Cal Berkeley, The History of Ezra Nehemiah, which is remarkable for its exacting analysis of data and its confidence in the reliability of the historical accounts of the Bible. He then completed a THM in biblical literature at Princeton Theological Seminary. His THM thesis, The Relationship of the Chester Beatty Biblical Papyri of Ezekiel to Codex Vaticanus, set the pattern of his continuing sensitivity to the implications of the original form of the text. Nine months later, while concurrently being a teaching fellow in Old Testament Hebrew at Princeton, Dad completed a THD in Old Testament at Princeton. I was born during this time, too. Dad wanted to teach in a Presbyterian seminary, but word had spread that he was strongly pro-inerrancy, and none responded positively to his applications. Bob Jones Sr., however, invited Dad to teach teach Old Testament at Bob Jones University. Eager to teach GIs who wanted to return overseas as missionaries, Dad accepted, though we'd never heard of the school before. While I was a missionary in Japan, I met about 100 missionaries who'd studied under Dad. Most were from Bob Jones. Dad later taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Wheaton College Graduate School of Theology, and Covenant Theological Seminary. He was a founding member of the Evangelical Theological Society, its secretary from 1955 to 62, chairman of its nominating committee in 1964, vice president in 65, president in 66. He was a rare combination of a true genius with the humble spirit of a servant and a love of missions. Mm. As her only son, every Sunday of his life, Dad wrote his mother a long letter telling of the events of the week. 
When we traveled as a family through Palestine, Turkey, and Europe, Dad was always sharing insights into places and events that have shaped history. Uh, I miss him terribly. He was a great dad. I can imagine. Uh, he definitely uh, has quite the credentials, <laughs> uh, and, he, and he just sounds like the kind of dad that any of us would want to have. Uh, but tell us about how that how this commitment that you um, were sort of that was instilled in you, how your commitment to inerrancy grew during your research at Cambridge and thereafter, and about a, a lesson that you learned that sort of stands in sharp contrast with what is often the common belief concerning higher criticism. Right, right. When I see something that appears to contradict something else in Scripture. I look for a resolution of the conflict. For example, 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35's prohibition of women speaking in church appears to conflict with statements throughout this chapter encouraging all to prophesy, encourage, and teach. With chapter, and also with chapter 11's regulating how a woman should cover her head while praying and prophesying. I first thought that the last phrase in verse 33, if joined to verse 34, might resolve this by limiting the silence to what is contrary to customs, quote, in all the churches of the saints. I found to the contrary that every manuscript I examined had a paragraph break at the beginning of verse 34. <laughs> but in the process, I found the distigme obelis mark in the margin of Codex Vaticanus. Further examination of other distigmae revealed a remarkable correlation between them and the location of textual variant readings in other manuscripts. All at that location in the text. Uh, Paul Kinnar, the senior paleographer at the Vatican Library, invited me to come and see if any of their ink matches the original ink of Vaticanus. I remember the thrill of entering a bank vault door into the manuscript room, going to the locked interior room of the most precious manuscripts, and examining the original apricot color ink of Codex Vaticanus. After long, careful examination, my heart leapt when Paul Kinnar said, when comparing a distigme to the original unreinforced ink of the manuscript, c'est la même couleur, we found 51 original apricot-colored distigmae, and some others where original apricot-colored ink protrudes from distigmae that were re-inked with the rest of the manuscript in the Middle Ages. This provided a sufficient statistical basis for believing that surviving manuscripts probably have preserved most of the textual variants that were available to the scribe of Vaticanus. This then led to the discovery that all eight distigme obelisk symbols in Vaticanus are at the exact location of a multi-word, widely acknowledged interpolation, a block of text added later. Hmm. Apparently, then, the obelis, which was a standard symbol in Greek literature to mark spurious text, and which was used throughout Origen's Hexapla to mark interpolations the Septuagint added to the Masoretic text, was added to a distigmae to identify a specific kind of textual variant, a multi-word interpolation. This gives evidence that the two verses commanding that women keep silent in the churches were not in Paul's original letter, but were added in the margin later. Not only did this resolve the conflict between 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and other statements in the context, it provides some of the most important evidence for the reliability of the textual transmission of the New Testament. Hmm. Thus, approaching Scripture with a conviction that it is true has led to my most important discoveries, discoveries others missed 
because they did not share my belief in inerrancy and so did not try to resolve apparent contradictions. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm sure we're going to come back to that passage in Corinthians later. But but let's talk then about how someone raised with this firm uh, firm commitment to the inerrancy of scriptures came to hold an egalitarian view of men and women in the church and at home. Uh, and from what I understand from your book, it all began with a seminar that you attended at Cambridge uh, in England. Can you tell us about that? Yes. When I was beginning my Ph.D. studies at Cambridge, I heard a lecturer make a statement that he believed that there was no passage of the new, in the New Testament, properly understood in its original context, that limits the ministry of women. Hmm. I almost stood up in the class and said, that's not true. But I was just beginning my PhD studies, and I decided I will get my data together, so if anyone ever says that again, I will be able to prove them wrong. <laughs> so that night I went home and read First Timothy in Greek. And I read it again the next night, and the next night, and every night for several months, and I finally concluded that I could not disprove him based on this passage I thought was my surest uh, proof. Well, it's the logic is very simple. Because virtually every sentence of the letter addresses the problems with the false teaching throughout the first paragraph of the book, and because the book specifically says that younger widows had already followed after Satan, and we're going about from house to house, probably house church to house church, saying things they ought not. Uh, well, it would make sense in that situation to limit the teaching of women because of the threat to the church. But it wouldn't necessarily mean that all women everywhere uh, couldn't teach. Or And so <clears throat> the irony is that I began my research in order to dis- disprove the very position I've come to adopt. Right. Uh, that's interesting. Well, so now, you know, after you'd become convinced eventually by the research that you just mentioned, you, you waited quite a while before publishing your conclusions. Why is that, and what eventually encouraged you to publish? For seven years, I didn't publish my research out of a desire not to cause division in the church. Then I prayed that the Lord would make it clear to me if he wanted me to make my research known. Within two days of that prayer... The Evangelical Free Church president urged me to publish my findings. The Evangelical Free Church Ministerial Association asked me to write a position paper on women in ministry. And I was given an article that argued on the base of 1 Timothy 2 that women's susceptibility to deception bars them from engaging in public teaching. There are some activities for which women are, by nature, not suited. I took these three things, all happening right after that prayer, as clear guidance that I should publish my work. So I began the writing and distilling of my research findings, culminating in my book, Man and Woman, One in Christ. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to let us get to know you a little bit. Let's jump right into the topic of men and women. We're going to come back to some of the passages that you mentioned. Uh, But I want to begin with the first chapter of your book in which you discuss the backgrounds to Paul's teachings. Uh, So first, tell us about Paul's Hellenistic and Jewish cultural context, how it is that most Greeks and Jews of Paul's day viewed women. The Apostle Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. His travels and the bulk of his ministry were in the Gentile Greek-speaking world, so it's inevitable that he had extensive contact with Hellenistic thought and practice. The treatment of Hellenistic women varied dramatically from region to region, from Sparta and Rome, where women had political responsibilities, to Athens, where wives of the wealthy were essentially imprisoned. 
women tended to have more freedom in the Western portions of the Hellenistic world and in Egypt. The first century B.C. Greek historian Diodorus Siculus wrote that in Egypt, quote, it was ordained that the queen should have greater power and honor than the king, and that among private persons, the wife should enjoy authority over her husband, the husband agreeing in the marriage contract that they will be obedient in all things to their wives. In Paul's day, Mosonius Rufus praised marital love and the deep union between husband and wife. Hellenism, however, had a broad misogynistic streak. Euripides calls women this bane to cheat mankind, a great bane and this creature of ruin, and he wishes that men could just buy sons for gold at the temple. I shall never take my fill of hating women, he writes. Even Plato, who occasionally affirms the virtue of particular women, so a woman could be a guardian, though not a philosopher king, in his Republic, calls men superior to women. He writes, Do you know then of anything practiced by mankind in which the masculine sex does not surpass the female on all these points? <laughs> the one sex is far surpassed by the other in everything. One may say the woman is weaker than the man. He warns that whoso has failed here and in life shall be changed into woman's nature at the second birth. Wow. Aristotle, too, says, The male is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject, for the male is by nature better fitted to command than the female, since man is rational and woman irrational. Consequently, for the two parties to be on an equal footing or in the contrary positions is harmful in all cases. Even their virtues are qualitatively different. Man has the courage of command and the woman that of subordination. He describes the female is, as it were, a deformed male. <laughs> Menander calls woman nature's greatest misfit and writes, where woman is, there is all evil. And to instruct a woman is simply to increase the poison of a dangerous serpent. Democritus states, to be ruled by a woman is the worst insult for a man. In the 2nd century AD, Lucian states, let women be ciphers and be retained merely for childbearing, but in all else, away with them. Perfect virtue grows least of all among women. And all the gods, methinks, hate what he, Prometheus, did in fashioning females a cursed brood. <laughs> in 1st century Hellenism, women were generally treated as their husband's property. In order not to dishonor their husband's faithful observance of social conventions, was expected, particularly in avoiding the appearance of an adulterous or prostitute. Plutarch describes harmonious marital life. Quote, the wife ought to have no feelings of her own, but she should join with her husband in seriousness and sportiveness and in soberness and laughter. A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. <laughs> and control ought to be exercised by the man over the woman, not as the owner has control of a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by well. entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. Plutarch said that uh, the property and estate ought to be said to belong to the husband, even though the wife contributed the larger share. Yet in Paul's day, new opportunities were appearing for women. Various philosophical, political, financial, religious, poetic, and romantic forces promoted equal rights or greater equality for women. The Isis cult taught. Isis gave to women the same powers to men. 
women of status could study, organize meetings, and participate in religious ceremonies and demonstrations. By staying at least three days in her parents' home each year, a Roman woman avoided becoming the property of her husband. <laughs> First century AD Roman law permitted women to hold political and religious offices, own and dispose of property, make a will, give testimony, terminate a marriage, and other things such as sue for child support and custody. Most women lacked formal education, resulting in their widespread disdain. This disdain was furthered by the prominence of homosexual relations between men and teenagers in educational circles, particularly the gymnasia and the symposia. Many of the pillars of Greek literature, including Plato, Aristotle, Euripides, Aeschylus, and Hesiod, were critical of the abilities of women and wrote highly of homosexual relationships. The pederast described in Pluto, Achilles, Tatius, and Lucian viewed women as vicious, lazy, and vain. Achilles Tatius describes the character of a youthful male as noble, unaffected, and soul-satisfying. But all a woman says and all her actions, too, are figments for the occasion. With as few exceptions, the overall picture of the Jewish tradition from, from around the time of Paul is fairly consistent in its low view of women. Josephus asserts, the woman says the law, is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed, for the authority has been given by God to the man's spirit. He writes that the Essenes disdain marriage because they wish to protect themselves against women's wantonness, <laughs> being persuaded that none of the sex keeps her plight troth to one man. Philo declares, the woman being imperfect and depraved by nature, made the beginning of sinning and prevaricating. But the man, as being the more excellent and perfect creature, was the first to set the example of blushing and of being ashamed, and indeed of every good feeling and action. He writes that woman is irrational. He teaches that woman is not equal in honor with man, and that women are easily deceived. Moreover, Virgins and wives are not allowed full control of their vows by the law, since that would not be to their husband's advantage. Zurich says, A man's spite is preferable to a woman's kindness. Women give rise to shame and reproach. No wickedness comes anywhere near the wickedness of a woman. <laughs> the Testament of Reuben states, Women are evil. Women are overcome by the spirit of fornication more than men, and in their heart, they plot against men. Rabbinic writings, which, though conserving earlier traditions, are generally later than Paul, are particularly misogynistic. Ten portions of empty-headedness have come upon the world, nine having been received by women, and one by the rest of the world. Women are greedy, inquisitive, lazy, vain. Woe to him whose children are females. Talk not much with womankind, they said this of a man's own wife, how much more of his fellow's wife. Hence the sages have said, He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna. It is disgraceful for a scholar to speak with a woman in the street. A wife who speaks with any man may be divorced without payment of her dowry. Philo says that assemblies are for men 
and that women are best suited to the indoor life which never strays from the house. The social status of women is summed up in the common phrase, woman, slaves, and children. For all three have over them a man who is their master. Legally, women lacked many normal human rights. They were almost entirely at the disposal of their father or husband. During the first century AD, however, women did have various legal and property rights paralleling those granted in Roman law. The inferiority of women was particularly evident in religious matters. A prayer recommended for daily use says, Blessed be God that thou hast not made me a woman. <laughs> in religious standing, women were almost non-persons. Rabbis even debated whether fathers should teach their daughters the law. Uh, the Mishnah forbids women to teach even children. Josephus describes the two sections of the synagogue mentioned in the law of Augustus, the Sabbatayon and the Andron. The first, where the liturgical service took place, was open to women too, but the other part, given over to the scribes' teaching, was open only to men and boys, as its name suggests. The name means uh, a male man. A woman should not be allowed to come forward to read the Torah in public. In general, during the liturgical service, women were simply to listen. They were not considered part of the assembly or regular or full participants. Thus, they were not included in the quorum required to establish a new synagogue or to worship. In gatherings for worship, the ancient synagogue forbade women to speak in practice as well as in principle. In every case where we have records, the rabbinic schools were solely for boys, never girls. Well, I appreciate you taking that time. So, I mean, if it would be fair to summarize all of that by saying that while views of women were somewhat mixed in the uh, Greek culture of Paul's day, um, the the Jewish cultural context was one in which women were, you know, were, were held at a fairly low level in terms of, um, you know, being contrasted with men. Uh, if that's the case... Let's move on to Gamaliel, uh, if that's how, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but, uh, but the scripture tells us that he was Paul's teacher. Who was Gamaliel, and how did his views of men and women contrast with that of the surrounding Greek and Jewish culture? Right. Acts 22.3 reports that Paul, at that time Saul, had the highest possible credentials in Pharisaic rabbinic education. Brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Paul's teacher was none other than the famous Rabban Gamaliel I, the elder, who, like his grandfather, or possibly father that's debated, Hillel, was held in high esteem. So high that the Mishnah states, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased, and purity and abstinence died. He's the Gamaliel described uh, as a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people. His learning and character earned him the title Rabban, given to only seven Jewish doctors. Gamaliel, like Paul, emphasized the sovereignty of God, as seen in his address to the Sanhedrin in Acts 5. Gamaliel's reference to the kingdom of heaven are, re are reflected in Paul's 14 references to the kingdom of God and of Christ. Gamaliel claimed that he saw directly by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is also a key theme in Paul's letters. Both Gamaliel and Paul exemplified care for particular slaves, 
like Tabi before him, Onesimus could hope for a better deal than most in his situation. The surviving sayings of Rabban Gamaliel I indicate a favorable attitude toward women in sharp contrast to the rabbinic tradition as a whole. Hmm. All but two of the six sayings of Rabban Gamaliel I in Danby's Index of the, of the Mishnah explicitly treat women and men equally, including testifying in court, or they promote the welfare of women. And none are derogatory to women. Gamaliel was considerate of the practical needs of women, as in freeing midwives to go anywhere to help a delivery, and allowing a woman to marry again on the evidence of one witness that her husband had died, including evidence from a slave or from a woman or a bondwoman. Paul also grants women's freedom to remarry in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7. If the unbeliever divorces, let him divorce. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. Gamaliel ordained that a widow may make a vow to collect payment of her ketubah. Similarly, Paul defended women's marital rights. Rabbi Gamaliel once pronounced the formula of a blessing on seeing a very pretty pagan woman. In rejecting the pretty petty limits of legalistic Pharisaism and championing freedom and equality, Paul was extending the trajectory of his teacher, particularly as regards women. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it does definitely sound like uh, G- Gamaliel's influence is, is present in his writings. But but it's not only Gamaliel whose views concerning men and women would have stood in contrast to those of Paul's surrounding culture, according to you, anyway. You argue that the Holy Scriptures would have done so as well, uh, beginning with the creation account in the opening chapters of Genesis. Later on in the interview, in part two, we're going to come back to Genesis and look at some uh, complementary arguments originating from it. But for now, what do you see in those opening chapters that would have, uh, like Gamaliel's influence, led Paul to reject the surrounding culture's belief uh, that men should be in authority over women? The creation of man and woman is summarized at the end of the grand overview of the whole of creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the wild animals of the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God created him, him created he him, male and female, he created them. Man, in Hebrew Adam, is explained as them and as male and female. And Genesis 2, Genesis 5, 2 explicitly states, he called their name man, Adam, in the day he created them, male and female. Thus, Adam in these verses clearly refers to human beings, humans or humankind. It's only later in the text that the name is applied to the first male human being, Adam. God's image is not restricted to the male, nor does the text imply any difference between the image of God in man and woman. The surrounding pagan creation myths say nothing about God granting both man and woman authority over the earth and its creatures. This blessing in Genesis gives no hint that God gave man more authority than woman or that God subjected woman to man. God, God granted authority to man, God granted authority to man and woman without differentiation. Hmm. Nothing in the first chapter of Genesis grants man priority in status or authority over woman. Similarly, the dominant focus of chapter 2 is on the equal status and mutual responsibility of man and woman. Genesis 1-3 to consistently depicts the unity of man and woman 
as equal partners, not woman under man. Twenty statements in Genesis 1-3 to depict men and women equally. One, God creates both male and female in God's image and likeness. Two, God gives both male and female rule over animals and all the earth. Three, God gives both male and female the same blessing and tells them together to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Four, God speaks directly to both man and woman three times in chapter one. Five, God gives male and female together all plants for food. Six, woman is a help or strength to man, a noun the Old Testament never elsewhere uses of a subordinate. Seven, in fact, all but two times it refers to God as the help. Seven, woman corresponds to man, literally is in front of man, face to face, not below. Eight, God makes woman from the man's rib so that she is made of the same substance as he. Nine, the man recognizes, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Ten, father and mother are, are identified without hierarchical distinction. Eleven, a man is united to his wife, implying oneness. Twelve, a man becomes one flesh with his wife, implying unity. Thirteen, both the man and woman are naked and feel no shame, sharing morality and sensibility. Fourteen, the woman and the man are together at the temptation and fall. Both face temptation. Fifteen, both the woman and man eat the forbidden fruit both exercising a bad moral choice. 16. The eyes of both are opened. They realize they're naked and sew coverings. 17. Both hide from God, showing they both experience guilt. 18. God addresses both directly after their disobedience, showing both have access to God. 19. Both pass the blame, showing both have this weakness. And 20. God announces to both specific consequences of their sin. Both are responsible. Genesis 2 focuses on the creation of man and woman. Its narrative structure climaxes in the creation of woman. In contrast to the refrain, it was good for every other stage of creation, it highlights man's need for woman by stating, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a partner for him. It is only after the creation of both man and woman the text the text declares it was very good. Nothing in Genesis 2 to 3 teaches that women have a duty to be subordinate to men. As my book shows, every attempt to find a hint of subordination in the text is speculative, not clearly thought, taught. The same is true of attempts to read female superiority into the text. The dominant focus of the text is on the equal status and mutual responsibility of man and woman. Well, like I said, we'll come back to that uh, a little bit later uh, because some complementarians might disagree with some of that. But uh, but for now, you, you go on to talk about what the scriptures say about woman's marital position later later in the Tanakh, uh, as well as her social position and her religious position. Just what do the scriptures uh, that would have so influenced Paul? Uh, what do they tell us? And, and how could it how would it have further influenced Paul to reject the authority of men over women? The Old Testament describes many women in leadership with God's blessing. It never states that being female should disqualify them. The prophetess Miriam is sent by God to lead Israel. Deborah is one of the judges whom the Lord raised up and who saved Israel from the hands of their enemies. 
She was a prophetess and the highest leader in all Israel in her day. She, a wife and mother, has authority to command Israel's military commander, Barak, go, and he goes. They work together well with shared authority. He is military commander, she as commander-in-chief. Queen Esther had sufficient influence to save her people from imminent genocide and to bring about the destruction of the house of Haman, along with 75,000 enemies of the Jews. She, along with Mordecai, wrote with full authority, and Esther's, de Esther's decree confirmed these regulations. The Bible praises the Queen of Sheba and the Queen of Chaldea. Although Queens Jezebel and Athaliah were wicked, like most of Israel's kings, the Bible does not criticize them or any other woman on the grounds that it was wrong for a woman to have authority over men. Priests consulted the prophetess Huldah on finding the lost book of the law. <laughs> men in spiritual leadership over Israel sought instruction from her. The king, the elders, the prophets, and the people accepted her word as divinely revealed. Their obedience to her sparked what is probably the greatest revival in the history of Israel. More generally, the Old Testament expresses hope that all people, men and women, should take spiritual leadership as prophets. Moses said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Joel predicted a greater prophetic ministry for women. I will pour out my spirit on your people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Never does the Bible state that these women are exceptions to a scriptural principle. Quite the opposite of excluding women from leadership over men, the Old Testament describes God appointing women to both secular and sacred leadership. Because the Old Testament teaches that God put women in positions of religious and secular authority and blessed them in those positions, Paul would naturally have regarded any interpretation of the text that says it is contrary to God's creation ordinance for women to have authority over men as a misinterpretation. Okay, and, I, and it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask about the fact that uh, complementarians will say that what you've given are uh, exceptions to the rule. But what, what would your response be if a complementarian were to argue that uh, not only are they exceptions to the rule, but even if we grant that they aren't exceptions to the rule, it doesn't necessarily transfer to women in authority within the church. How would you respond to that? Paul repeatedly contrasts the law to the gospel. The law is a binding factor from which we are freed. The gospel a freeing factor. To say that the Old Testament permitted women to have freedom to have authority among the people of God and in religious matters. But in the New Testament, that freedom is taken away. It's the exact opposite of Paul's vision of life in Christ and of the freeing message of the gospel. I see. Okay. All right. Well, we've looked at uh, Gamaliel, and, we, and we've looked at the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures that would have served as Paul's background. But, of course, more than either of those would be Paul's time with the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he would have certainly influenced Paul perhaps more than, than those others. How would Jesus' treatment of women, uh, how, would have, how would that have contributed to an egalitarian view on Paul's part rather than a complementarian one? Christ's example in all his deeds and words was to treat women as persons equal with men. He respected their intelligent and spiritual capacity, as is evident in the great spiritual truths he originally taught to women. To the Samaritan woman, he said, the water I give 
will become a fountain of water, springing up to eternal life. Salvation is from the Jews. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit. I who speak to you am the Messiah. To Martha he taught, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Although a woman's testimony was not recognized in the Jewish courts, Jesus demonstrated his respect for the testimony by appearing first to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection and instructing her to tell the others. After Jesus taught the Samaritan woman, she acted as the first missionary to her people, and many of her people believed. Jesus seemed to be unconcerned with gender differences in the, in the kingdom of God. When a woman in the crowd says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast you nursed. Jesus responds, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus affirms that those who do the will of God are his brother and sister and mother in Mark 3 and Matthew 12 and Luke 8, showing that obedience, irrespective of gender, is more important than kinship. Elsewhere, Jesus explains that in heaven there will be no marriage, but those who rise from the dead will be like angels. Significantly, Jesus does not rebuke the mothers at the feeding of the 4,000 for leaving their domestic duties for three days to listen to his teaching. <laughs> Similarly, when Mary was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet, the posture and position of a disciple, Jesus affirmed her, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus gives no hint that the nature of God's will for women is different than for men. He makes no distinction in the righteous demands of both. The issues facing, facing all people at the last judgment apply equally to men and women. Giving food and drink to the hungry and thirsty, welcoming strangers, clothing the naked, and visiting those sick and in prison. The equality of the sexes is evident in Jesus' vocabulary. He calls a crippled woman a daughter of Abraham, a linguistic usage 70 years prior to the first recorded rabbinic equivalent. He says, you are all brothers, and he treats obligations to father and mother equally. Jesus occasionally breaks with social customs, causing consternation as when he speaks alone with a Samaritan woman at the well and allows a sinful woman to touch him. He also touches many women with his healing hands. Jesus was sensitive to the social structures oppressing women. He attacked the divorce custom of his day that allowed only the woman, only the husband to file for divorce, and for practically any reason. Similarly, he denies the common view that man cannot commit adultery against his own wife, only against another man. Jesus attacks traditions in a way that include a significant change in the status of women in, in Israel. There is no close parallel to Jesus' overall treatment of women as equal to men in the records of any of his Jewish contemporaries. I see. Okay, well, let's, let's shift gears then from uh, these influences, uh, or rather from Paul's influences, to his own writings, beginning with women that you list in Chapter 2 of your book, women that you claim Paul identifies as ministry leaders. Uh, you know, Maybe we could start with Phoebe. What, what is the significance of the words Paul uses to identify Phoebe's role as diakonos and as uh, prostatis? The New Testament names only one person with the explicit title of local church leadership. Phoebe, who is deacon of the Church of Cancria, Romans 16.1. 
Each of the other three occurrences of diakonos in Romans refers to a leader and in context is better translated minister than servant. If Paul had intended merely a regular pattern of service, a verbal form such as who serves would have been more appropriate than the noun diakonos. The participle specifying Phoebe to be a deacon and the qualifier of the Church of Cancria seems to imply a recognized office. The same title was used for pagan religious office and could apply to women. This is not the Greek word for deaconess, diakonissa, and in context certainly does not mean maid. Phoebe's leadership is evident in Paul's request. Receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her support in whatever matters she may have need from you. For she has been a leader, a prostatus, a leader, chief, president, or presiding office, one who stands before of many and of myself also. Paul writes, receive her, in contrast to all the other people to whom he conveys greetings. This indicates that Phoebe was the bearer of Romans, Paul's most theologically comprehensive epistle. He must, therefore, have held her in the highest trust. Since Phoebe delivered Romans as Paul's emissary, she naturally answered questions about it. As such, it is only natural to conclude that she explained Romans to men. Every meaning of every word in the New Testament related to the word Paul has chosen to describe Phoebe as a leader, prostatus, that could apply in Romans 16.2, refers to leadership. This includes the usage, usage shortly before in Romans 12.8, let the one in leadership govern diligently. Hmm. Horsley identifies citations of prostates that identify the president of an association. He also cites Sophia, the second Phoebe, and six other inscriptions or papyri about female deacons and office holders published in 1979 alone. Prostatus can also, like the Latin patrona, patroness, denote the legal representative of strangers and their protector, for as aliens they were deprived of civil rights. This meaning does not fit Romans 16.2, however, since Phoebe cannot have stood in this relation to Paul since he was born free. This term almost always refers to an officially recognized position of authority. Translations such as the, the NIV, which repeats the word, give her any help, for she has been a great help, hide the fact that the Greek verb translated help her from parastemi to help, is almost opposite in meaning to the word describing Phoebe as a prostatus. Hmm. If Paul had intended to say simply that Phoebe had helped others, it would have been natural for him to repeat parastemi to make his reason parallel his request. The new RSV has, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well, has, has the disadvantage that this meaning is not listed in the standard Liddell Scott Jones or Barbara Arndt Gingrich, and that Paul's companion Luke uses a different word that those lexicons and also the Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich identify as meaning benefactor. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, you ergetai. Thus the linguistic evidence in the context of Phoebe standing in the church strongly favor the normal meaning of the term prostatus, namely leader. Since her leadership was in the church, it would entail spiritual oversight. Since Paul includes himself as having been under Phoebe's leadership, 
This was not simply leadership over other women. It should not be thought strange that Paul, who commanded all Christians be subject to one another, should himself be subject to others, at least in certain situations, such as submitting to local church leadership in the churches he visited. Ritterboss concludes there is no argument whatsoever to be derived from Paul's epistles that it was only the non-official charisma that was extended to the woman and not regular office. Cranfield argues it's virtually certain that Phoebe is being described as a or possibly the deacon of the church. John Calvin says she had a public office in the church. Even Charles Ryrie, who teaches the woman's role in the church is not a leading one, acknowledges that prostatus includes some kind of leadership. Okay. Uh, but, of course, the list of women that, that you talk about uh, in the book isn't limited to Phoebe. What about Priscilla, who, along with her husband Aquila, instructed Apollos in the way of God? How, how does uh, Priscilla and Paul's calling both her and him fellow workers uh, indicate that Priscilla was a leader and teacher in the church? Good. <clears throat> both Luke in Acts 18.2 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.19 introduce them listing Aquila's name before his wife's proving that something like her wealth or social status did not necessitate, necessitate this reversal of convention. But they both list Priscilla's name before her husband's, contrary to Greek and Hebrew custom, in every context mentioning their active ministry. This makes it virtually certain that Priscilla had a significant, if not the dominant part, in teaching Apollos the way of the Lord more accurately. Luke, Paul's long-term co-worker, gives no hint that Priscilla's instruction of Apollos was in any way inappropriate for a woman, but rather praises her instruction's accurate content and its results. Since scripture speaks with approval of a woman instructing this eloquent man mighty in the scriptures, it's hard to imagine any man who would be above being taught by a woman or any theological topic that would be out of bounds for a woman. Paul always refers to her as Prisca, the more respectful form of her name. Luke always adds the diminutive ending in Priscilla. Paul also shows his respect by greeting Prisca first in both of his two most extensive lists of colleagues. Hmm. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.19, when they were in Ephesus, and Romans 16, when they were in Rome. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their necks for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Fellow worker connotes one who labors with Paul as commissioned by God in the shared work of mission preaching. Even Ryrie acknowledges she could hardly be excluded from the ranks of a teacher. I see. Okay, well, we've got Phoebe, and we've got Priscilla, or Prisca. Uh, and then, of course, there's the notorious Junia, uh, whom Paul calls an apostle in Romans 16.7. Tell us about the controversy surrounding Junia's name, and why it is that you think that her identification as an apostle can't be reconciled with a complementarian view of men and women. Paul, this apostle, is the most important position in the church. If a woman can be an apostle... This is incompatible with the view that women must not be in authority over men or teach men in the church. Although many careful studies have come to the same central conclusion that Junia is a woman apostle, uh, Eldon Epps' masterful study, Junia, the first woman apostle, has untangled the convoluted web of how most ancient Greek texts up until the 
1998 printing and the Nestle most recent Greek text up to the 1998 printing uh, of the Nestle Elan and UBS and English versions changed this clear affirmation of the woman Junia into a man. Romans 16.7 reads, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been imprisoned with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and became Christians before I did. Epp argues that the unanimous credible testimony of the church's first millennium identifies Junia as a woman, that no surviving Greek manuscript unambiguously identifies the partner of Andronicus as a man, that no early translation gives any positive sign that this is a masculine name, that Junia was a common Latin woman's name, that no bona fide instance of Junius has ever been found. Epp goes on to show that Edicus of Rome, writing about 1300, is the first reliable documented instance treating this as a man's name, and he called the name Julium. And that the male name Junius first became popular with Luther's translation. It was first published this way in a Greek New Testament in 1852, edited by Alford, and first published in English in 1833. The Junianus name contraction theory is not only unattested, but standard contraction conventions would not result in the New Testament spelling. And the identity in form with the common woman's name tells heavily against this theory. There simply is no basis for the seemingly arbitrary change from Junia to Junias. Union, the only textual variant to it is Julian, an even more common woman's name. And then that's in uh, Chester Media Papyri P46. It's unlikely that anyone who thought that Union was a man's name would insert a woman's name in its place. Thus, this variant is evidence for the very early uh, Comfort and Barrett identif- dated to mid-2nd century understanding that Junia was a woman. Paul repeatedly defines an apostle as one who encounters the risen Christ, receives a commission to preach the gospel, and endures the labors and sufferings of missionary work, as their imprisonment with Paul attests, that bears fruit and is certified by signs and wonders. Paul identifies as apostles himself, Silvanus and Timothy, Barnabas, Peter, and James, the brother of the Lord, and probably John, Apollos, and Epaphroditus. Outstanding among the apostles implies that Andronicus and Junia were revered missionaries recognized in the church as having authority as ministers of the gospel. Chrysostom, even though he typically disparages women in church leadership, confirms that Junia was an apostle. Quote, even to be an apostle is great, but also to be prominent among them. Consider how wonderful a song of honor that is. For they were prominent because of their works, because of their successes. Glory be how great the wisdom of this woman, that she was even deemed worthy of the apostle's title. The recent attempt to interpret this as though it affirms that Juni was outstanding in the eyes of the apostles is contrary to the way it was understood by the patristic commentators, apparently without exception. Paul, of all people, was not impressed with name-dropping. He's not the type to encourage status based on even the apostles think they're outstanding. 
Furthermore, the meaning of the word epissimus as notable, remarkable, of exceptional, exceptional quality, splendid, prominent, outstanding, applies naturally to those distinguished among the wider group of apostles in the early church. But it is not natural to suppose that the apostles, the apostles were known to have a consensus of judgment that particular people, including Andronicus and Junia, uh, were outstanding. Every example of N, meaning in the eyes of, listed in Bauer and Gingrich, follows a set phrase, N ophthalmois, in their eyes. Mm. And there is no mention of their eyes in Romans 16, 7. Okay, but let me, let me, I apologize for not including this originally in my questions, but just out of curiosity, what about the attempt, the one that I'm most familiar with, the complementarian response to this, which is that the word apostle can have multiple meanings, and this isn't necessarily the kind of uh, authoritative apostle that you've described. Is there, are there, are there other uses of apostle that might, that might lend itself to that elsewhere in scripture? Uh, well, apostello is a verb meaning to send. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, Someone can be sent and to do something, uh, and that doesn't entail uh, any particular authority. Mm-hmm. But in Paul's writing, when he's referring to outstanding among the apostles, uh-huh. I mean, he's uh, he's obviously referring to a group of church leaders who uh, who are known as the apostles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and there there was no uh, group known as the apostles who did not have authority. And not only in Paul's writing, but anywhere in the New Testament, or as far as I know, early uh, patristic literature. I see. Okay, well, that's. I, I appreciate you uh, answering that for me. I, that's something I want to investigate some more. I, I find that interesting. But in, in any case, uh, before we move on, and, and I do want to move on shortly, but, but briefly, what other noteworthy women does Paul mention, uh, and how do you think that they support the egalitarian view that women can teach and have authority in the church? Paul praises Mary, who worked very hard among you, Romans 16, Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. My dear friend Persis, another woman who worked hard in the Lord, very hard in the Lord. Now, Ritterboss notes that the Greek word for worked hard, kopiao, describing each of these four women, is a word that specifically denotes work in the gospel and in the church. These four women are the only people in this chapter to whom Paul gives this commendation. He repeatedly describes his own authority with this same word and entreats the Corinthians to submit to everyone who works with him and labors at it. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he associates those who labor with those in authority. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you. There's a prohistemi, again, Hmm. in the Lord. And who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Seven of the ten colleagues whom Paul praises for their Christian ministry in Romans 16, 1-16, are women. Seven out of ten in a culture where women would hardly ever be mentioned. Um, in Philippians 4, Paul writes, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to assist these women inasmuch as they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul specifically classifies them with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, confirming that Paul associates them not simply with other devout women, but with his own fellow ministers of the gospel. 
the words along with and especially uh, and the rest of my fellow workers indicate that indicate their equality and standing with Paul's male fellow workers in the gospel. This is a group whose stability in the faith and final commitment to Christ is unquestioned, as whose names are in the book of life demonstrates. Paul considers their ministry in the gospel too important to let their energies be sidetracked over their their issue of contention. So he enlists his true comrade to assist them in resolving it. Many other women were in Paul's circle, such as Lydia Thyatira, the first recorded European believer, in whose home Paul and Barnabas stayed, the leading women of Thessalonica and Berea, who were among the, the founding pillars of those churches, Damaris, follower of Paul, Nympha and Aphia, in whose homes churches met, the mother of Rufus, who has been a mother to me, and the four virgin daughters of Philip, the evangelist, who had the gift of prophecy. Yeah, it's definitely becoming uh, difficult to uh, to understand why Paul is oftentimes viewed as a misogynist. <laughs> uh, oh. But um, but but let's move on then uh, from this list of women to chapter three of your book, where you list twelve of what you call Paul's theological axioms, implying the equality of man and woman. Now we don't have time to go into detail in all twelve of these, uh, but if you could just explain maybe a few of the ones that you think most powerfully support an egalitarian view of women in the church, could you do that for us? Well, Paul writes that all believers are created in God's image. Their new self in Christ is being renewed in the knowledge of the, in the image of its creator. Paul argues for the equal standing of man and woman in Christ in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to 12, since from the creation each has its source in the other. In Colossians 2, he affirms that all Christians, male, male, is, male and female, have this fullness of the Godhead in Christ, in whom you were circumcised. Paul depicts females as having the fullness of the Godhead and being circumcised. He depicts males as members of the bride of Christ because their gender is irrelevant to their being in the image of God and their being in Christ. It is preposterous to conclude that all members of a group who have the fullness of God in Christ and who constitute over half the church should be excluded from teaching and leadership. Since humanity as male and female being in, is in God's image, God cannot be exclusively male. Indeed, God as spirit cannot be male at all. According to, accordingly, Paul's reflection on the personal work of Christ typically uses the inclusive word anthropos, meaning human, not on air, meaning a male person. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is a natural outgrowth of being filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another. The theme of mutual submission permeates Paul's one another statements, such as serve one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul does not limit any of these to only one gender, If only one party does all the submitting, it's not mutual, but hierarchical. Mm. The bidirectional nature of mutual submission presupposes the equal standing of the persons submitting to each other. This undergirds the nature of Christian leadership as humble service. Furthermore, the principle of the oneness of the body of Christ presupposes the equality of men and women. The church is the body of Christ. 
Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 12.25 that there should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. Since Paul explains that different parts of the body have different functions, it's clear he's not advocating that all believers are the same or all do the same thing. Rather, the division he opposes is for one part to put itself over other parts, namely competitive ranking. Stratification of status is antithetical to the oneness of the body. Furthermore, according to Ephesians 4.12, all members, women and men, should be involved in ministering and building up the body of Christ. Another principle is the priesthood of all believers, which presupposes the equality of man and woman. In affirming the direct access of believers to God, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul implies the universal priesthood of all believers. Paul's prayer in Colossians 3 is that all Christians, women as well as men, will have a teaching ministry. Quote, let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 14.24 affirms, when you assemble, each one has a teaching. The, pre- the priesthood of all believers is incompatible with excluding women from the priesthood, but rather presupposes the equality of men and women. Another principle is that the gifts of the Spirit manifest the equality of men and women. For Paul, the order of church worship and the structure of the church authority are intimately connected with gifts of the Spirit. He states, To each the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. The Spirit gives to each one just as he determines. Thus, all women, just as all men, have spiritual gifts and are responsible to use them, not in seclusion, but, quote, for the common good. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul urges all believers, women as well as men, eagerly desire the greater gifts, namely to be apostles, prophets, and teachers, and especially the gift of prophecy. To restrict women from such forms of ministry is not simply to deprive the church, it is to impede their obedience to God's command. Following the Old Testament tradition of women prophets such as Miriam, Huldah, Deborah, and other New Testament prophets such as Anna and the four daughters of Philip, Paul permitted women to prophesy. He states clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 14, 31, you can all prophesy, announcing the advent of the age of the Spirit. Peter also declared, your daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Believers should recognize gifts in women in exactly the way they do for men, by testing the gift in practical ministry and seeing whether the Spirit blesses. Dare we exclude women from offices of leadership and teaching to which God has gifted them and called them? Okay, well, that's that's some stuff to, uh, to really think about. Um, but, but let's move on now to the rest of your book. It's broken up into two parts, uh, the first of which exegetes Paul's statements about women in his earlier letters, and then the second one focuses on Paul's later letters. Uh, and in, in both cases, you, you spend a lot of time focusing on an exegesis of those passages, often pointed to by complementarians as support for their position. Now, I want to hold off until the second part of the um, interview to talk about some of those. Uh, but I want to look first at two passages that you discuss to give you an opportunity to sort of finish up your positive case uh, for egalitarianism. And, and I want to look first at 
Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all in one Christ, uh, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now you touched upon this briefly in answering my previous question, but what do you think that, or why do you think that this means more than just spiritual equality in Christ? A lecture I gave in Houston, uh, just a week and a half ago, listed 42 factors in the cultural, historical, theological, and literary context of Galatians 3.28, its actual content, and its parallel passage, proving that it must not be divorced from life in the church and the home. I'll just mention a few reasons why Galatians 3.28 must not be restricted to spiritual equality in Christ. Its specific cultural context demands practical application. Galatians 3.28 is probably a deliberate repudiation of a common Jewish prayer found repeatedly in early Jewish literature. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a heathen, a bondman, or a woman. According to rabbinic tradition, these three groups were exempt from the study of the law. So the prayer's focus is on the, free, on the privilege of studying the law and the exclusion of heathens, slaves, and women from this privilege. Paul's repudiation of these distinctions must entail the opposite, namely the inclusion of these groups into the full life of the church. Galatians 3.28 therefore denies that these groups are excluded from privilege in Christ. Furthermore, its specific historical context demands practical application. The specific situation 3.28 addresses requires its application in life. Chapter 2 tells us how Peter withdrew from table fellowship with Gentiles in Galatia. Paul asserts, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned of hypocrisy and not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul fought to apply Galatians 3.28 to church life. The natural implication of the equality of male and female in Paul's teaching is that the gifts of women for ministry in the church should be recognized, welcomed, and exercised in all areas of church life, including teaching, pastoring, and church leadership. Dare we exclude women uh, from such offices of leadership when God calls them? There are nine factors in the literary context of Galatians 3.28 that demand that it not be divorced from life in the church and home. First is the theme of the radical newness of life in Christ, live through the spirit that permeates Galatians. The transformation is so radical that those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires, so radical that in chapter 6 he calls it a new creation. <clears throat> to interpret 3.28 as divorced from relationships undermines this key theme of the letter. Number two, the entire book of Galatians is a frontal attack against favored status or privileges being granted to Jews over Gentiles. In 3.28, Paul states the core theological argument against the Judaizers, and it introduces his opposition to circumcision of Gentiles. There is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. The negative form of 3.28 shows that Paul intended it to prohibit excluding Gentiles as a group from any privilege or position in the church. Number three, the absence in Christ of the distinction between Jew and Gentile is the foundation on which Paul denies the need for circumcision, the central practical issue of Galatians. This demands that Paul did not intend the application of Galatians 3.28 to be restricted to spiritual status. 
Within Judaism, kinship and racial purity were key issues in spiritual standing. Genealogies determined not just who could be a full Israelite, but also who could be a priest or a Levite. In Christ, however, Gentile slaves and women have no disadvantage. In Christ, the division, these divisions are abolished and all stand as one, not just spiritually, but practically in church life. Number four, as far as we know, there was no dispute at that time that Gentile slaves or women could become Christians. The, the issue in Galatians was instead mistreatment of Gentiles as second-class citizens. Number five, the reference to baptism in 327, and you are all one in Christ in verse 28, implies church life. Number six, four in both Galatians uh, 3.26 and 27 shows that Paul intended to give reasons why, verse 25 says believers are no longer under the law, but are sons of God through faith. This freedom from the law has immense practical implications for life in the church. There is no male and female undermines the law's purity regulations that kept women from full participation in worship. The barriers in the law separating Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female, are done away in Christ, freeing them all from the bondage of the law. Number seven, Galatians 3.23 states, We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. This imagery of the barriers of prison contrasts directly with the negation of barriers in Galatians 3.28. Since the barriers of the law did severely restrict access of Gentiles and women, and to some extent slaves, from full participation in the social life of the people of God, this contrast implies that the removal of those barriers in Christ will result in freedom to participate fully in the social life of the church. Number eight, uh, Galatians 2.6, speaking about life in the church, affirms that God does not show favoritism. This confirms Paul's commitment to equality in the life of the church. Number nine, verse 29 affirms that all these are promised an inheritance as Abraham's seed, the Israel of God, established by the new creation. This inheritance is, is explained as entailing freedom from the law and the full rights as God's people. Number 10, Galatians 3.29 Heirs of Abraham according to promise refers to the Abrahamic blessing to all nations. All seven blessings in Genesis 12 are about relationships with people. Furthermore, there are 11 factors in the actual wording of Galatians 3.28 itself that demand practical application. I won't list all of these, but okay. one of them is the Greek conjunction between Jew the and Greek, and slave and free, is typically used by Paul to join two elements to convoy, convey one idea. Paul, we know this is true here because Paul cannot have intended two separate ideas, there is no Jew in Christ, and there is no Greek in Christ, since there are Jews in Christ, and there are Greeks in Christ. Paul, through each pair, is making a single point in Christ, there's no Jew-Greek dichotomy, no slave-free dichotomy. And in the same sense, in Christ, there's no male-female dichotomy. For as the Colossians 3.11 parallel demonstrates, the change in conjunction entails no change in meaning. These statements are absolute. Nothing in the text limits their application to standing before God. There is no Jew-Greek dichotomy must apply to life in the church, since their equal standing 
in the church is the primary concern of Galatians. The application of the new creation to the breaking of barriers between man and woman is evident by the reference to male and female, using a different conjunction than the previous two pairs. And it uses, makes an exact quotation from the Greek Old Testament reference to God creating mankind in his image, male and female. This is a set phrase, arsen kaithelu, that in every other Bible passage about humans refers to the creation of male and female. As we've seen, new creation is consistently associated with transformation of life. Galatians 3.28 teaches that the male-female distinction does not exist in Christ. Logically, since it does not exist in Christ, this distinction should not restrict privilege in his church. To exclude all women as a class from church leadership or teaching in the church is precisely the sort of restriction or privilege that Galatians 3.28 repudiates. It's just as contrary to the gospel as excluding Gentiles or slaves from church leadership. Paul's point is not that Christ is irrelevant to the relations between male and female, but that gender, just as race and social rank, is irrelevant to status in Christ. The barriers that separate male and female in society do not exist in the new reality of their relations in Christ. Each of these three pairings specifically deals with social standing. So to say that they have nothing to do with social standing is to deny the most obvious application of this language. It's irresponsible to interpret Paul's repudiation of ethnic, economic, and gender ranking in Christ as compatible with continued ethnic, economic, or gender ranking in the church. In Christ, racial, social, and biological divisions have been replaced with a new oneness. Consequently, discrimination and special privilege based on these external factors is contrary to the unity of Christ's body. This is one new humanity where Jews and Gentiles share equal citizenship. Furthermore, you are one in Christ Jesus implies a social unit and so should not be limited to the spiritual state of individuals before God. In particular, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ requires that gender does not divide the social community of the church. No one is a second-class citizen or excluded by race, social status, or gender from any position or privilege in the church. And being in Christ, in Paul's letters, is associated with life in the church, such as in Galatians 2.4, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus from circumcision, and 5.6, what counts in Christ Jesus is faith expressing itself through love. To deny its link with life in the church has no basis in the text and is contrary to its use by Paul. I won't mention any of these, but each of the six parallel passages to this specifically identify practical application. So all of these reasons uh, and all the parallels which specifically identify practical application are incompatible with divorcing Galatians 3.28 from life in the church. Cumulatively, they prove that Galatians 3.28 itself, itself must not be divorced from actual life in the church. Such a bifurcation is contrary to Paul's understanding of spirituality, of faith, and of the gospel. Galatians 3.28 unambiguously teaches that in the practical life of the church, 
there is no male-female dichotomy. This principle directly opposes any exclusion of women simply because they are women, from teaching, exercising authority over men, the priesthood, or any other position of ministry. Any attempt to separate the male-female pair so that it alone avoids the implications of equal standing and privilege in the church fails for three reasons. First, the identical expression, there is no, introduces each pair. Second, each of the three statements is absolute with no qualification. Third, the all in the summarizing statement, for you are all one in Christ, must apply to all three of the prior pairs, thus reinforcing their parallel significance. Well, that's definitely uh, a lot to think about uh, and, and to research. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, but, but of course, uh, of course, complementarianism isn't just a view of authority relationships in the church, but also in the home. Uh, and next, you discuss First Corinthians seven and what you call the equal rights of men and women, or man and woman, in marriage. How does First Corinthians seven support egalitarianism over complementarianism? Well, first of all, Paul's most detailed treatment of marriage is First Corinthians seven. In fact, it's longer than all of his other passages about marriage combined. It specifically, it specifies exactly the same conditions, opportunities, rights, and obligations for wives and husbands regarding 12 distinct issues about marriage, both physical and spiritual. In each, he addresses men and women as equals. His wording is symmetrically balanced to reinforce this equality. Paul affirms that husband and wife mutually possess each other. They have mutual conjugal rights. They have authority over the other's body and sexual obligations. Both are told not to separate or divorce. Both consecrate the other and sanctify their children. Both have freedom if deserted. Both have a potentially saving influence on the other. Both are free to marry. Both may focus on Christ as single or on pleasing the other and in marriage. Paul even writes, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Richard Hayes correctly observes how revolutionary this was. Paul offers a paradigm-shattering vision of marriage as a relationship in which the partners are bonded together in submission to one another. All right, well, that was first the first half, part one, of my interview with egalitarian Philip Payne. Uh, stay tuned for the second half, in which we'll look at uh, common complementarian objections uh, to the egalitarian perspective. Until then...